This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we delve into the world of illicit drugs and at least one that might soon be legal. From the debate over legalizing marijuana in Uruguay to the devastating effects of the drug war in Mexico, we'll have various views. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Chevron goes to court to keep from paying indigenous Ecuadorians. Chevron lost a case in Ecuadorian courts two years ago. In that case, Ecuadorian courts ruled Chevron owes $18 billion in damages. Humberto, one of the indigenous Ecuadorian leaders involved in the case, reacts to the legal wrangling. They are saying that we are delinquents. That's just not possible. When they are the ones who consider us in such bad faith, when they are the criminals that are doing what they do in our Amazon rainforest. The indigenous people alleged pollution from oil fields caused ill health effects, including birth defects. Oil companies have contested the case for almost 20 years. Chevron became embroiled in the case when it bought Texaco, the original defendant in the Ecuadorian case. Chevron alleges the indigenous groups and their attorneys used corrupt practices and bribes to trump up testimony in the original case. Venezuela's Navy detained a ship surveying for oil in the Caribbean this week, a ship that was working for a U.S. oil firm. Venezuela's Navy seized the ship in disputed waters off the coast of Guyana. Guyana's foreign minister lodged a complaint with the Venezuelan government over the seizure. Both governments are set to discuss the case in a diplomatic meeting later this week. Venezuela released the ship after it was detained for five days. Venezuela claims large portions of Guyana as its own, claims that go back to the 19th century when Guyana was a British colony. More information this week about the North Korean ship seized in the Panama Canal carrying an illegal shipment of Cuban arms. Panamanian investigators revealed that the MiG fighter aircraft hidden on the ship are in good shape, had been flown recently, and were thoroughly modern aircraft. Cuban officials have maintained the planes were relics, which were being sent to North Korea for repair. Panamanian officials found the aircraft and other weapons hidden under 10,000 tons of sugar. A team of investigators from the United Nations are also investigating to see whether the shipment violates UN sanctions against shipping arms to North Korea. Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff, reacting to the U.S. and Canada spying in Brazil, is once again calling for Internet system security changes in the country. The plan is to use servers located within Brazil to encrypt the data being transferred inside the country. The strategy prevents outside countries from intercepting and reading the electronic communications between Brazilians. An elderly couple of 80 years finally gets married in church. 103-year-old Jose Manuel Rieya and 99-year-old Martina Lopez were married in a religious ceremony. They married 31 years earlier in a civil ceremony. Lopez says she was honored to have her marriage blessed by a priest. 
Many family members attended the ceremony, including many of the couple's eight children, 50 grandchildren, 35 great grandchildren, and 20 great great grandchildren. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Recently, the rock band Aerosmith, during its tour of Latin America, made a request to meet with Uruguay's president, Jose Pepe Mujica. The band went to personally congratulate Mujica for pushing a plan to legalize marijuana. This may all sound like a public relations stunt, but for his part, Mujica is serious. He says legalizing marijuana will cut the power of drug cartels in his country and reduce crime. Uruguay's Chamber of Representatives passed a legalization plan this summer, and Mujica says he will sign the law if it passes the country's Senate. Listeners to our program wrote after our coverage of this issue this summer and requested more information on the law. So we invited one of the top experts in the hemisphere on marijuana legalization back to the program. Here are excerpts from our conversation with John Walsh of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, about the details of the legalization plan and his recent trip to Uruguay. It's slated for debate in the Senate this month and should be passed without any major changes by the end of November, probably. So when we talk about legalization, does that mean I, I can have as, as much marijuana in my house or grow as much as, I, as I'd like? No. Uh, it means in this case, as in the case of the states, Colorado and Washington, there are rules, um, there are limits, and the intention is to set clear enough rules that people can abide by and then enforce them. Do we know what those rules will say for those who are um, living in Uruguay or maybe visiting Uruguay? And there might be two different standards for those things. Uh, many of the rules remain to be spelled out. Many of the details of the regulations will be forthcoming once the law is passed. Some of the rules are clear and some of the system framework is set by the law. For instance, uh, production um which will then be purchased by the state for distribution in pharmacies, a registry for users with the idea of controlling or calibrating supply versus demand with a monthly purchase limit of 40 grams per person. And two other uh, wrinkles there is a homegrown provision that allows up to six plants plus uh, cannabis clubs, which is essentially a cooperative that will allow Uh, a number of people to join together so that they don't have to be responsible individually for cultivating but can benefit as a group. Okay, so I, I, I want to get into these details just a little bit. 40 grams, what is what is that equal to? Several packs of cigarettes or? Yeah, I mean, it depends how they're, how they're used. Um, but 40 grams would be the equivalent of, let's say, a marijuana cigarette a day Um, for the month. So it's a, it, would, it would accommodate a fairly steady, if not heavy, user. And, and six plants. Six plants can produce quite a bit of marijuana. Oh, yeah. Over, over the course of a year, and depending on how well they're tended, they could produce a, a considerable amount. And the idea of the homegrown provision, and this was part so, of... So, so, so to, to be more specific, sorry, mm -hmm. in, in that area would be A significant amount. We're, we're talking um, a pound of marijuana, maybe between six plants. Is that is that conceivable in a year or or less? Probably less. Um, 
again, the idea is to allow people who want to grow their own and who want who know that they can trust their own product not to have to resort now to an illegal market, but to have the the option to grow their own um, rather than purchase something that someone else has produced. I, I just wanted to to go over exactly for those who are not marijuana users or who are not familiar with with drug culture exactly what what we're talking about and in one of the pushbacks we got from the last time you were on our program we were talking about what exactly is an ounce of marijuana and and um, we at least I was a little bit off in that an ounce of marijuana is actually equal to a large bowl of marijuana so many many um, uh, cigarettes or joints can come from that amount and and so I guess we're talking about similar amounts when we talk about the the amounts that might be legal in Uruguay yeah, an ounce is a fair amount. Um, it's not a. It's not just one marijuana cigarette. So you know they me- they measure it in grams in Uruguay. But the idea is to find an amount that is uh, a, could accommodate the person who is going to use on a regular basis, um, so that they don't have to resort to other means. Tell us a little bit about this this fact finding trip that you took to Uruguay ahead of this legalization and. Do we really think there is going to be a legalization coming later this year? And and what did you see on your trip? Oh, they'll definitely pass their law. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that at this point. The real there's a real feeling in the streets for passing it. Well, here, here's the the interesting thing about the Uruguayan debate, as say opposed to what happened in Colorado and Washington. Those were citizen initiatives. Uh, in the case of Washington, with the clear backing of the establishment in the state, not so in Colorado, but there were citizen initiatives where public opinion and support tended and trended, and the votes were clearly overwhelmingly in favor. In Uruguay, public opinion is still not in favor of this proposal. It's gradually growing as people learn more about it and become more comfortable with it, and as trusted figures within Uruguayan politics, including the probable next president, uh, support it and come out and endorse it. That would be Tabaré Vázquez, who was president and is likely to be president again. Uh, so public opinion is gradually warming to it, but the Frente Amplio, the, the party with the presidency and both houses of the Congress, has been moving the bill forward despite the lack of public support because they think it's the right thing to do. You, you mentioned the former president. Isn't he a, a former uh, physician? Yes, he's an oncologist, in fact. And, and so he's, he's endorsed the bill. He has. Um, he initially was at best lukewarm. Uh, he's known in Uruguay for pushing through a ver- what is now seen as a very effective tobacco control regulation. Um, he was skeptical at first of this, but he was outspoken in July uh, that he is in favor, and I think that really gave a boost both in terms of the public opinion poll and in terms of the Frente Amplio's own congressional bench that, okay, we're going to go forward with this. This seems may seem a little counterintuitive to some folks that, that Uruguay is moving toward more restrictions on tobacco but less restrictions on marijuana. Well, it's interesting that you, you pose it that way because the, their idea is they see, that they see an equivalence. Tobacco was illegal but essentially laissez-faire, uncontrolled commodity because of the power of the industry, the legal industry, 
and they want to clamp down on that and bring their smoking rates down, which they they have achieved some successes there. Uh, Cannabis, on the other hand, as strictly prohibited, although um, consumption is permitted in in Uruguay. Uh, They see on the other pole, but trying to bring it into a regulatory framework as well. In other words, both were extremes, one on the legal laissez-faire end, one on the prohibited black market front. They want to bring both under a tighter regulatory approach. Am I wrong that this is also maybe a a health issue? More tobacco smoking is, as we know, statistically poor for for a nation's health, and um, marijuana actually is used in the medical field for various things, especially in oncology and cancer. Well, those are really good questions. Clearly, and this is the way Tabaré Vázquez saw it and posed it, tobacco is a major killer um, in Uruguay and around the world, and that was his first priority. Uh, Cannabis, on the other hand, the health impacts, on the one hand, because it's not nearly as widely used, but also because it does have medicinal properties to be explored, both uh, in terms of ancient uses and in terms of how it may lend itself to a whole range of maladies, at least in relieving symptoms and maybe more. Tell us a little bit about your trip. You you were traveling with a U.S. delegation from some of these states that have recently legalized marijuana. Yes. Uh, last week when we were in Uruguay, it was at the invitation of the Uruguayan government agency that's responsible for drug policy. And the idea was to bring in people from Colorado in particular who went through Colorado's own process in terms of the citizen initiative, in terms of the governor's task force to write and propose the regulations, and then the member of the state assembly who ushered that through the Colorado assembly. So what is it about Colorado's process that Uruguay might learn from? And in terms of the technical details of regulation, what are the what are the domains that they need to be looking at? What are the questions that they're going to have to confront? That was the purpose of the visit. So tell us some of those details. What are some of those questions? Well, one of the one of the big questions is going to be price, um, and that relates to um, the demand and, of course, the supply. So how much you choose to produce is going to affect the price. If you set the price or if the price ends up, whatever your intent, if it ends up too high, um, you are not going to be able to undercut the black market like you hope. If it ends up too low, you're going to maybe encourage more consumption than you'd like. So that's going to be, it's a crucial question, how to address it in terms of uh, production allowances uh, and tax rates. Finally, um, your writings and, and, and other interaction with you points to a feeling that that you think that the Organization of American States' recent report on decriminalizing drugs is very important in in this context. Is that affecting Uruguay, um, or is it affecting some of these other countries? I I think it is. um, The report doesn't only talk about uh, the cannabis issue, but there is a considerable amount of focus both in the the so-called analytic report and in the scenarios report of the OAS study and I do encourage listeners to look at both of them. You know, one of the looming questions now that the United States uh, has given this con- conditional green light to Washington and Colorado to move ahead is how other countries are going to perce- perceive the U.S. with regard to its obligations under the international treaties. And this is a very important question because the U.S. 
was the major designer and for for decades now has been the chief sort of champion and enforcer of the UN conventions, which include cannabis. Uh, as I said, with regard to Uruguay, um, goes you know more generally, the United States, because of shifts in our own domestic attitudes and policies, we're now in this gray zone, a, a, an awkward area where it's going to be very difficult for the United States, given its internal policies, to uh, really pressure other governments not to consider similar approaches. And this is going to come up at the international level, how the the difference between a federal system like the United States, what that means for its obligations to the conventions, I think is going to be a contested issue for a long time. It's not going to be resolved. And for, for U.S. internal purposes, the idea that the states are doing this, but it's not federal law, is completely adequate for internal politics and policy. I, on the international side, a lot of governments are going to say, and I think understandably, oh, you know, you can't, this is double standard. If you're going that way and it's fine for you, there's no reason you can say that we can't pursue a similar approach. And I think that's going to open up and, and keep open this space for other governments, not just in Latin America, but around the world, to consider similar legal regulatory approaches. Thank you so much. John Walsh of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Pleasure, Rick. Coming up, it's midnight in Mexico. We'll discuss the popular book with its author. Stay with us. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania. And three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, Alfredo Corchado took time from his book tour to visit with us in our studios. Corchado is not only the Mexico City Bureau Chief of the Dallas Morning News, but he's also the author of Midnight in Mexico. Here are excerpts from our discussion. Tell us what you think is the salient part of the book, the part that that is that touches your heart the most. You know, the I guess the backdrop story is is really the drug war, but what really what I hope listeners come away with is it, it's a, it's really the universal search for home. It's a a love story uh for your homeland, for your family. It's a debate that's really between mother and son. Why did you have to take me out of Mexico when I was a kid? And why did you believe one country was better than the other and one country had more possibility? I think those were the questions that I, when I went back as a journalist, uh, as a correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, I went back searching for those answers. And that, I, I think, kind of a, is the shadow throughout the book. So you have the immigrant story, the Mexican immigrant story, someone who left but, but, but wanted to return, which these days tends to be more of the story. Um, I think Americans tend to think of Mexicans who emigrate and then they stay. And, and we know that that's not really all that's happening these days. Well, not these days. I mean, I think for the longest time, the, the, the tradition, the culture has always been about, you know, you, you, you go to the United States. Uh, in my situation, and I think more, especially as people begin to uh, to think about retiring, you, you hear more and more immigrants thinking of, you know, can I make my life back in Mexico? 
Uh, that remains to be seen. I mean, that's something that I think the Mexican government would like to see uh, communities to come to life again. Many, many communities throughout Mexico that have been abandoned, and especially because of uh, U.S. border security, because it's difficult on the Mexican side with the drug violence for people to go back and forth like they used to. In my case, uh, I think the fact that uh, I came to the United States, was able to get an education, I had the privilege to go back to Mexico on my time. And as my mother says, you know, you went back to earn dollars. And that's something that uh, doesn't happen very much. So you should be grateful with the decision she made, which I am. I'm, I'm struck by the recent story. I'm sorry to mention a, a competitor, but in the New York Times recently about the fact that statistically more people from the United States are moving to Mexico than, than vice versa. And that is that is not the narrative that we hear in this country in the United States. No, it's not. Um, and, and there are parts of Mexico. I mean, I, th- I think the last 10 years or so we've been consumed by the drug violence. And I still, I, I'm one who feels that uh, that story is still very much there. It's still very much relevant. I mean, it's a story that uh, where security basically threatens the nation's security. I mean, you have to cover that. But that doesn't mean that the, the, there are no other threats. There are no other uh, narratives in, in Mexico. And just, you know, in, in, in what I cover, there are regions of Mexico that are, that are far more prosperous uh, that uh, we don't really get to tell as much. Uh, in, in I work for the Dallas Morning News, so we have this long-standing relationship uh, as a labor market with central Mexico. Uh, El, El Bajío is what, what they call it, uh, San Miguel de Allende, the, uh, the Guanajuato area, the Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, and you see the growth of an aerospace industry, uh, auto plants. Obviously, you have the whole retirement community in San Miguel. So much that uh, one of the things I picked up lately, I, and maybe it's a, it's a growing trend, when I ask people, do you want to immigrate the way your parents did, the way your grandparents did, and they will respond to you, well, you know, I'm curious about the United States. I'm curious to see what Dallas is all about, or I'm curious to see what uh, New York, D.C. Is, is all about. But I'm not, I'm not so much looking to the United States for necessity. More out, it's more out of curiosity. And that's something you didn't really hear uh, in the past. Um, I, I, you know, when, when I hear stuff like that, I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic because you see the potential of Mexico. Uh, yet, I think as long as you have an impunity rate of 95% and, and the, the violence continues like it has in, in the last few years, Mexico's potential will not be really you know, realized as, as, as much as you, as, you, as you like to. I want to get to impunity and violence, but, but um, you mentioned towns that are emptier than they had been before because of emigration northward. And, and I'm wondering, are we talking about Michoacan state or, or other states like Michoacan where um, people do come back, but, but there's, there's not a sense of community because everyone has gone north? Or, or, or tell me about some of your experiences in those areas. Michoacan is a perfect example. Uh, San Luis Potosí, uh, Guanajuato. And I mean, here's, here's someone um, who grew up in Durango. I, I spent my years as a kid in, in, in San Luis de Cordero, Durango. And I remember every year, um, I didn't really know who my father was, but I knew that there was a man who would come once a year, uh, November, December, whenever it was winter, whenever fall came. 
And this strange man would show up. Uh, he was kind of, um, to me, he was my Santa Claus with, with the little sombrero hat on. And he had gifts. And so for two, three months, I had a father. Today, as a reporter, I go to some of these communities and I interview kids who have never seen their dads, who have never seen their mothers, who don't even know who, I mean, whether they have parents. It's, it's, uh, they're abandoned communities. You don't have the, the people coming back to revive the towns for Christmas or for the holidays and so forth. So it is a, a very different situation. And it's not just those regions, but I mean, I think um, if it's California, it's, if it's Oregon, if it's uh, the, the, the Washington area, every community in the United States has a direct connection to a particular community. And you see what the, <clears throat> what the current immigration policy has done. I mean, it's basically turned many, many towns in Mexico into ghost towns. When we talk about immigration policy, are we talking about Mexican immigration policy or U.S. immigration policy? U.S. immigration policy um, with the uh, – well, I mean, there are three factors that I think have, have really changed the, the uh, dynamic of, of immigration. One is the, uh, the violence on the, on the Mexican side. The fact that uh, drug cartels are now – they now operate much more as organized crime, and they control everything from uh, piracy, prostitution – to, uh, I mean, like extortions, kidnappings. They also control smuggling routes. So it's a lot, a lot more difficult for a Mexican to get across on the Mexican side. And then you're dealing with the, uh, the border search on, on, on the U.S. side, the, the border security, what the Mexicans call the wall. And then the third factor is the, the, the U.S. economy. It hasn't really rebounded. Um, so if you're a Mexican, you're thinking, you know, do I want to take those risks? Do I want to risk uh, the, on the Mexican side? Do I want to risk not getting across uh, because of border security? And then let's say I get to Dallas. Let's say I get to Houston. Will I find a job? We've had this phenomenon in Mexico for the last few years, you know, the, the so-called ninis. The ni estudia ni trabajan. You don't study. You don't, you don't have a job. And these people um, have grown up at a time when it's, increasingly hard to, to find jobs in certain parts of Mexico. So they become easier targets for the cartels to recruit as, as uh, hitmen, to recruit as lookouts. Uh, that doesn't mean that every young person in Mexico is a potential worker for the cartels, but that is something that in some towns more than others has, has been a reality. And we don't know if we're going to get a policy change this year or next year up here that may have some further effects. That's right. I mean, it's, it's you go to a lot of these communities, and the first question they ask you, you know, you're an American correspondent, and they say, you know, tell me what's the latest in D.C. with uh, with the Congress, with uh, President Obama. Are we going to get an immigration reform? Does anybody know? I don't think so. I just I just kind of nod my head, and I say, well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we, we are focused right now up here in D.C. on Syria. More than 100,000 people killed in Syria. But I think of the statistics in Mexico more than 100,000 people dead in the past six, seven years. This has been a slow motion Syria that people like you have covered, but I'm not sure that that has resonated up here, and I'm not sure why. You ask Mexicans that very same questions, and they will tell you because we don't have the bomb, and nor do we want a bomb. But I think if Americans saw Mexico as a bigger threat, security threat, Maybe you would have that you know, more attention. But yet, I challenge people to think of any other country that has more of a daily impact on their lives than, than Mexico. Whether it's the food you, you eat, the music, 
the car you drive, uh, the family ties, the blood ties. I mean, it's Mexico. You have 30, 35 million Americans uh, with uh, Mexican roots. But uh, you're right. I mean, that's, that's a question that oftentimes correspondents in Mexico we wrestle with, you know. Why can't we get that kind of attention? What else haven't we talked about that you would like our listeners to know? I think I want people to know that uh, Midnight in Mexico, the, the, for many people, the, the, the title kind of is gloom and doom. But I want people to know that, uh, to me, that's really, it's all about the promise of a new day. You, you're living the darkest moment, and, and you keep believing in the promise of a new day. And that oftentimes, during the worst of times in Mexico, you've also seen the best of Mexicans. You've seen this incredible, resilient spirit, and that gives you hope for the future. Thank you, Alfredo Carchado, the author of Midnight in Mexico and the Mexico City Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.